Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The debate over vaccine passports is reaching a fevered pitch. There are fears on both sides of the debate that if governments do not act, businesses will make up their own rules and there's no guarantee any implementation would be equitable. But also if governments do act, the rights of the individual could be trampled. In their report, Vaccine Ins and Outs, an exploration of the legal issues raised by vaccine passports, two of the five authors at the CD Howe spoke to me about their concerns and why they believe a well-designed vaccine passport regime backed by an equitable vaccine distribution system will in fact work. But how should it work? Brian Thomas is an adjunct professor at the Center for Health Law, Policy and Ethics at the University of Ottawa. His colleague at the Faculty of Medicine, Professor Kuminen Wilson, is also a senior scientist at the Clinical Epidemiology Program at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. Kuminen began by clarifying, can a fully vaccinated person contract COVID-19? And can a fully vaccinated person pass on COVID-19? So those are great questions, and the science continues to evolve on this. Uh, you know, at the outset of the pandemic, we had a much less infectious version of the virus. And we had really great news with the mRNA vaccine. They were highly effective. And it appeared at that time, the initial data was, this vaccine could prevent both infection and illness. You know, as new variants have emerged, the Delta variant in particular is highly infectious and, and causing a, a lot more viral load in individuals. And we're starting to see breakthrough infections in individuals who are vaccinated. Uh, fortunately, they do not seem to be getting sick, but they still have the potential to carry the virus and transmit it to other people. I suppose it's important as well to point out that vaccine passports are not intended to protect the vaccinated, but control the risk to the unvaccinated. How critical is it that this distinction be understood? I think that's an important question. I think that's something that people haven't understood here. When an unvaccinated person goes into an area where the virus is spreading, they are putting themselves at risk. They have the responsibility to, to protect those people if possible. We saw this in the third wave. We saw this, uh, the epicenters were the workplaces. We saw you know, marginalized populations who didn't have access to healthcare the way a lot of us do, uh, you know, may not have had easy access to vaccinations. Um, they would be in these workplaces, they would contract the illness, they'd bring it home to their families. It would spread amongst their families. They would show up en masse to emergency rooms. We need to do what we can to protect them. But by protecting them, we also protect the broader community, we protect the workplace, we protect against population spread. Brian, what are the charter rights that a vaccine passport must consider? I think there are two primary ones. So the first is uh, Section 7, uh, right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And it's under that Section 7 provision that we, <clears throat> that the charter recognizes a right to patient autonomy. Uh, and so some critics of vaccine passports have worried that uh, by creating a kind of ubiquitous vaccine passport regime, this effectively just mounts the pressure on people to get vaccinated to a point where that sort of vitiates their patient autonomy over the decision to be vaccinated, right? So there's, there, the claim is that they're effectively coercing people to be vaccinated. So that's one, uh, that's one charter heading. 
Uh, another is the um, uh, the right to equality under Section 15 of the Charter, which creates these protected classes and scrutinizes gov- any government policy that disadvantages such groups and analogous groups. So LGBT people have been recognized as analogous, uh, also protected under the Charter. So the argument here has been that certain marginalized populations that fit into these categories may be uh, overrepresented among the unvaccinated, and so a vaccine passport regime will disproportionately burden them, and that the claim is that this is a violation of Section 15. And as all part of that, the paper the both of you have helped co-write argues that passport gating should be limited to non-essential services. Let's talk about where a vaccine passport would and would not be used. Why just non-essential services? Uh, well, from a charter perspective, the reason would be that we're tr- we are trying to sort of uh, address these concerns about coercion. So we're trying to make this something. We're, t- we're trying to limit the scope of um, of effect here, so that we're really only impacting what are re- sort of pedestrian or, or recreational choices. We're not affecting people's access to the essentials of life. Right? We're not going to blow our people from getting buying groceries or accessing a pharmacy or these essential services. So, from a charter perspective, the argument is simply let's try to minimize. The, let's try to attenuate as much as possible the coercion that's involved in this by by limiting it to sort of optional optional activities. As opposed to just giving people a vaccine exclusion card? Um, I will have considered the possibility of a vaccine exclusion card. Um, how, would, um, how would that work? Well, the idea being that if it's been determined that somebody could not get a vaccine but still needs to do their grocery shopping, that they'd get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Sure. Well, that that is something we could do. I mean, we I suppose we could build in if we want to make accommodations for people who are have medical exemptions and so on. We can and probably should do that. I think that would be justifiable. But um, I don't see that as being uh, opposed to the concept of vaccine passports. Then what about the rights of those who refuse a vaccine because they don't trust the government or they don't trust the drug industry? You write that it seems unlikely that vaccine hesitancy would be construed by the courts as a profoundly personal belief. I understand there is some precedent tied to seatbelt laws. That's right. So in the province of Alberta, there was a, a gentleman who had a sort of, who made, claimed that his freedom of conscience was breached by mandatory seatbelt laws. Uh, and so he was essentially claiming that this was a kind of deeply held belief of his analogous to a, um, to a religious worldview. Uh, and the courts rejected that argument, saying, you know, this is not this is actually not a deeply held uh, worldview of yours. It's not analogous to a religion. It's this is more this is just your scientific judgment about something. And, you know, the state sort of reserves a right to be an authority on scientific judgments. And so that's why that, you know, another way of looking at this is just to say, would our society be governable if we actually recognized each individual's right to make their own scientific judgments and withdraw from laws that, that they disagree with? Right. That would be uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has said in various places that this would be totally unworkable so that we can't go that way in interpreting the charter. Uh, Kumanen, I can imagine it must be frustrating for you and your colleagues, you know, when Joe Average, who may not have passed grade 11 science, suddenly is an expert on the topic. I think we need to understand everybody's perspective and we need to do a better job of communicating if, if there are these other viewpoints. In the U.S., we're seeing something quite disturbing. Apparently, according to an economist poll, one in five Americans believe a microchip has been put in their arm when they get vaccinated. Uh, you know, this is not helpful. Um, we're seeing uh, two pandemics in the U.S. right now, a pandemic of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, where the people who are ending up in hospital are unvaccinated. You know, we, we need to do whatever we can to work with these communities, find opinion leaders within those communities, champions to help communicate the the, the actual facts about vaccines, how it was actually being brought in to protect them. We're starting to see that in the U.S. The Republican Party is starting to say, actually, you need to get vaccinated. Uh, You know, they don't like seeing their 
they're the Americans getting sick that uh, who support them. I, you know, we need to do the same here as well as much as we can. There's often when we talk about the United States, we've got all these different tropes that we use. We're one tenth of the size, so one tenth of the impact, all that kind of thing. Are, are you concerned that what we're seeing in the United States is something that is or could happen here? Or do you feel that Canada has a much better handle on vaccine hesitancy? So the, the challenge is with this Delta variant and it being so much more infectious, having such a higher reproduction number, and also the vaccine effectiveness is dropping a, a little bit against it, that the percentage we need to vaccine now is much higher than we thought at the outset. At the outset, we thought 60 to 70 percent. Now we're hitting 90 percent. Through voluntary uptake, we were getting to 70 to 80, but that last mile is, is tough, that last 10 percent. And we're going to need it to protect society and, and, and individuals. Uh, the challenge we also have in Canada is we don't have a lot of excess capacity in our healthcare system. The U.S. does. So when we have cases surge, that can overburden our healthcare system pretty quickly and put society into a lockdown. And, you know, I'm, again, I'm not a lawyer. I'll defer to the lawyer. But when we're talking about rights and freedoms, when we end up in lockdown, we're losing a lot of rights and freedoms. So, you know, what is the least restrictive measure here? Which one actually limits rights and freedoms less? You know, I, I talk about armchair scientists. You know, Brian, I can imagine you're just as stressed out about the armchair lawyers who seem to know the Charter of Rights and Freedoms better than you. Yeah, I'm frustrated by that. I'm actually frustrated by some of what the actual lawyers are saying. I think that there's a, there, I don't know what's happened, but there seems to be a tendency to sort of, uh, I mean, we've been writing about this for months now, and it seems that we're just running into the same arguments, which none of them actually have all that much traction, these arguments against vaccine passports, these arguments from coercion and equality rights that I've mentioned. Uh, none of them are all that are all that feasible. None of the ethical arguments are that feasible. And um, it's just been frustrating to have to that, you know, nobody's presented a, a, an in-depth case for these for these objections to vaccine passports. And they're just so these are just sort of floating around in this inchoate form that we're trying to bat down. And it's it, it's it's frustrating. And it's, uh, it's given the the legal community's lack of clarity on this. It's I can understand the uh, I can sympathize with the layperson who thinks that there's some deep charter or privacy issue raised by these by vaccine passports. So you write that there are at least four fundamental choices regarding the design of any given passport system. What information is in the passport? What additional information is collected when applying for it? Who issues the passport and the physical implementation? Uh, let's first talk about what information needs to be in that passport. Is it not just a simple case of a piece of paper with one sentence that says, yes, this person has two doses? This is something I, I think is a really important point to emphasize. We need to know exactly which vaccines you received and when you received them. And we're seeing that now. We're already seeing the EU and the U.S. having different standards for what they're going to accept for which vaccines. But we're also seeing the vaccines are working a little differently against the different variants. And so what may have looked like a combination of vaccines that worked very well initially may not work so well against a future variant. And the only way we can really know that is if we know exactly which vaccine you received and when you received it. And, uh, and we're also starting to see some data on waning immunity. Uh, you know, we, we're probably eventually going to need to consider boosters. So is someone who got two doses of a vaccine two years ago still immune? So this idea that you're immune or not immune is not the right way to look at this. 
we, we, you know, we need to know which vaccines you got. And then we need to work on the logic to determine, are you protected or not? What additional information needs to be collected when applying that would lead us to be concerned about charter rights? One of the issues would be some demographic information may be needed, like your age. Um, and, and I think we want to create, collect the minimum amount of information to make the decisions that are needed to be made. And, and a potentially we may need some demographic information. It doesn't look like sex and gender are impacting the vaccine effectiveness, but age is going to be a critical variable. And uh, it'll need to go into the calculus of are you protected or are you not? I wonder if additional information, um, and it's, it sort of sounds like I'm going down the path of, of police carding, but the, the idea would be the more information we have, the more knowledge we'll get. And therefore, there may be value in collecting certain information about an individual to be able to say this particular demographic is not getting the attention it needs. Brian, did I just step into a big legal minefield with that thought? Uh, well, I think the, the first question would be the scientific one, which I'm not sure from, uh, I'm not sure exactly what you have in mind in terms of more information. I mean, obviously the age is the one, as Kuman has indicated, but what do you think of in terms of additional information? Well, for example, indigenous communities are expressing concern that they don't have access to vaccines to the degree that the general population has. And if we know who has a passport and who doesn't and where they come from and why, maybe we'll have a better understanding as to what we need to do to fill in the gaps. So I'll take a stab at this. We don't necessarily need a vaccine passport system to provide us with that information. Our immunization registries should be providing that data. And and the, the government has been like already collecting this information. All a vaccine passport is really doing is giving that data back to you. Uh, and, and so the, the statements that we are not going to have a vaccine passport are basically telling people they can't get access to their own immunization records, which they need in an easily accessible form for many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of this data, though, does exist in an immunization repository already. When it comes to the issue of who issues the passports, we already addressed the issue of who issues the vaccines. We turned it over to um, the private sector and let the pharmacies handle that primarily. Uh, can we do the same thing with the passports? That sounds like a legal minefield. Uh, well, we could do the same thing with the with the passports. I mean, it is a legal minefield in the sense that you would have, you know, risks of fraud. In, you know, the in Ontario now, you get a piece of paper that can easily be falsified or forged. Um, so, if you built a pass, vaccine passport system upon those easily forgeable documents, then you would have you, you'd have to worry about the reliability of the system. Um, so there's that, and so the alternative is to have government get ahead of this and issue some reliable, you know, QR code that can be uh, easily verified. And, and I don't think that is such a really that's not much of a legal minefield. I think that that seems to be a solvable problem from the privacy experts that I've spoken to and from people, talking to people like Kuminen. But is it though? Um, there has been concern, particularly in the early stages of the pandemic, that the people who were getting vaccinated were people who had the ability technically to sit in front of a physical computer and hit refresh on 10 different websites uh, from pharmacies. And those who didn't have that, this digital divide concern, those were the ones who were left out. In a, do we not have to address that as an issue as well? I work both sides of this uh, as an academic. I also have a company, so we, we, we were responsible for Nova Scotia's rollout, which was a central booking system where those issues didn't arise. Um, but I appreciate that they have arisen here. 
I think you are bringing up a really important point that sometimes people aren't vaccinated, not because they're anti-vaxxers, but because of logistical considerations. In fact, that's a major reason why people aren't vaccinated. So one of the way we've been envisioning this is this vaccine passport, vaccine certificate, whatever you want to call it, is designed for your protection. If you're not vaccinated, sometimes your employer, government can facilitate and assist you getting your vaccine, getting that booking done. And I think for a large percent of the population who aren't vaccinated, I think that's what would be beneficial. That can really get us over that last mile. If you, you can't, it's really going to be tough to take on the anti-vaxxers. Um, it's, it's, it's akin to a religious belief in them. I've done a, I spent 20 years studying that in you know, the, the community, the anti-vaccine community. You're, you're not going to have a lot of success persuading them, but just by facilitating appointments and making it easier for people, I think we can capture more people and get them vaccinated. So then let's talk about that physical implementation of a vaccine passport, or as you pointed out, a vaccine certificate, call it what you want. I suspect what you call it, first of all, is actually quite important because it telegraphs a lot of information. But uh, also, what about that physical implementation? There is an analogy in your report that says that's kind of analogous to bracelets at all ages concerts for those who can drink. There's incredibly lax security associated with that analogy. Uh, How relaxed in our rules can we be before a vaccine passport or certificate or what have you becomes impotent as the unvaxxed and anti-vaxxed crowd simply shares or manufactures fake bracelets? We've sort of seen this already in the States. So from a technological perspective, we need what we call a verifiable credential. In that QR code, there needs to be a signature, that digital signature that allows the verifier to know that that was issued by a valid source. So that's really critical. So as Brian said, right now you can get your record, but it's uh, it's easily forgeable. We know with the yellow fever vaccine, that uh, is required to get into a lot of other countries. There are forgeries available so that people don't need to get the yellow fever vaccine. We don't want that situation to arise. We need to create a robust system where that doesn't occur. And to your point, Michael, we don't, if we leave it totally to the private sector, stuff like that will happen. The yellow fever um, point is is actually quite relevant as well. Brian, when we talk about a passport, it, it brings up the issues of leaving the country or leaving a province, so interprovincial travel or global travel. What are the, the implications associated with that from a charter rights and freedoms perspective? Sure. Well, yeah, this was another, I didn't mention this at the start, but this was something people worried about at the outset in that so section six of the charter protects our right to mobility, both within across provinces and internationally. Um, so as we say in the paper, the, I mean, the concern about interprovincial travel is, is actually not an objection to vaccine passports per se, but it's a, it's a concern about their sort of patchwork implementation in Canada, right? If we had some provinces with passports, some provinces without, then you may, you know, you may run into problems with interprovincial travel and that, that would be, that would engage charter rights. Um, so that's an argument to sort of get our act together nationally and find some, you know, interoperable way of checking each other's passports or, or just creating a national passport system. Uh, then on the piece of international travel, I think, I mean, there's really no, there's no question here that the federal government will have to provide us the paperwork necessary to resume international travel, right? As soon as, when other countries as they are now um, start demanding proof of our vaccination, the government's going to have to provide us with some secure way of proving that. And um, and again, that will be a charter issue. And, you know, there's a charter right to be, to receive a passport and there's a charter right to travel. So 
this, this, the federal government has really no choice on this. The real question is whether the fed, feds and the provinces can sort of coordinate on this and uh, find a streamlined solution. Right. The idea that who's responsible for actually issuing the, the passport. Healthcare is generally a provincial domain, even though I believe the Supreme Court has ruled that health matters can be federal or provincial, depending on the nature and the scope of the problem. That's correct. Yes. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's no question it's just going to take some coordination between the, the I mean, the provinces are the ones who gather this, these records. The provinces are the ones who will be able to uh, validate someone's vaccination status. So they're, they're going to have to be involved in this. I, I mean, uh, I will express some of my frustrations. Uh, we brought this issue up a year ago. Uh, uh, this was inevitable <laughs> that we were going to need to have some kind of proof of immunization. There was, to Brian's point, uh, there was a lot actually in the academic community who said, no, you can't do this. But we lost some time as a result. This is a complicated solution we need to put in place. We need a trust system so that one province's issuer's records are trusted by another. That's the role of the federal government to coordinate that. And then we have to, the federal government needs to work with international authorities to make sure that we can trust each other's sources of data. What I've heard is we're not going to have this until December, early New Year. Um, and this could impede the ability of people to travel or not have, or have to go through quarantine each time. So you could see this from the beginning of the pandemic that some kind of proof of vaccination was going to be needed. If we do not have a passport system in place before December, what does that mean for the prospect of a fourth wave? We're not out of this yet. I think there's some senses that we're done and some places have said no more masks. Uh, the Delta variant is a different virus. It's spreading infectious, uh, much more infectious. I don't think we're going to have a something like the third wave, uh, but it, it could have something that could be significant and result in temporary you know, sh shutdowns and increased public health measures. Uh, a way to mitigate that would be with proof of vaccination, particularly for high-risk settings like warehouses, meatpacking plants, where we know this virus spread, and also for potential super spreader type air, you know, events like larger weddings or rock concerts or sporting events. And, and we, we, we have a great vaccine. We have the technology. I think we'd be remiss in not bringing it in. But here's the problem. You suggested that it would be important for things like warehouses, meat processing plants. These were deemed essential services at various provincial levels. Um, if we have a passport that is not required for, not for essential services, how do we ensure that those meat processing employees are actually being taken care of and protected? Sorry, Brian, if I can speak to this. I, I think, again, this is not a zero-one approach. Uh, what we have suggested and what, from a company perspective, we're looking at is essentially what the standard of practice is already. Right now, as a healthcare worker, I have to get the flu shot to go to work. But I don't. if I don't get it, that's fine. I can still go to work. But if there are cases of flu on the ward, they tell me not to go to work for my own protection. I also have to get the hepatitis vaccine, not to protect against spread in the hospital, but if they don't want me to get a needle prick and get infected and, and be liable for that. Mm -hmm. At school, you can, as you were discussing, you can have an exemption and have your child go to school without the vaccine. But if there's a case of measles at school, your child doesn't get to go to school for their own protection. We can have workplaces ask employees for their vaccination status. They don't necessarily have to provide it, but if there are cases in the workplace and they don't have data that you are protected, they can say you should stay home. 
And, and that would go a long way to protecting these places. It's, it's not quite the passport in the way that some people have envisioned it, but it's still using proof of immunization to protect individuals and workplaces. Brian, final thought from you. It is the opinion of the paper and the five authors, the two of which we have here today, that there will not be a problem implementing a passport system from a legal perspective. Yes, that is true. There's always a degree of speculation with this. And sometimes what governments do when they're concerned about potential charter issues is they'll send a reference to the Supreme Court and say, tell, you tell us uh, sort of preemptively whether there's a charter issue here. And we, we, we don't have time for that. That would be a long process. Um, and so we need to go with our best judgments about this. And I think that um, a careful study of these questions shows that there's just very unlikely to be a major charter issues with uh, uh, vaccine passports. Are you optimistic we get a passport? I'm more concerned about the timing of it. I think that pressure will mount and mount and mount, and then we'll be rushing to do something at the last minute. I think it's an inevitability. Uh, I think particularly as the science gets more complicated with waning immunity and new variants and differential vaccine effectiveness against those variants, we're going to need to have this data in order to best protect society. I, you know, we're really lucky here. A 95% initially effective mRNA vaccines are available. Is it's really unfortunate that we don't maximize their ability to protect us. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and insight. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Kubanen Wilson is a senior scientist at the Clinical Epidemiology Program at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and a professor of medicine at the University of Ottawa. His colleague is Brian Thomas, the adjunct professor at the university's Center for Health Law, Policy and Ethics. For the full report, Vaccine Ins and Outs, an exploration of the legal issues raised by vaccine passports, visit cdhow.org. Still to come, from a physically distanced C.D. Howe Institute, September 10th, should we worry about deficits when interest rates are so low? A Jack Mintz lecture with Dr. Martin Eichenbaum, the Charles Moscow's professor of economics at Northwestern University will offer his answer. And September 23rd, the Fed on a tightrope, inflation, growth, and the future of U.S. monetary policy with Dr. William C. Dudley, Senior Research Scholar at the Griswold Center for Economic Policy Studies at Princeton University. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.